possibly be able to, to cover every nook and cranny. You know, one of the things I realized about being in Kaya is that there are some people in here who are just now beginning their walk. They're just now beginning to follow after Jesus Christ. And it's a fairly new thing for them. And then there's some of you who've been around for a really long time, or maybe you attended seminary, or maybe you came from different, a different lineage of churches. And so there's a diversity in terms of, of the knowledge set here. And so I have to be careful how I apply the paintbrush because um, I don't want to be too broad, but I also don't want the content to go over people's heads. So if there's questions that you have uh, throughout this portion of our study, make sure you reach out to me. My email address is available on the website and, and things like that. But everybody's ready? You got your Bibles open? Okay, let's, let's pray. I see a few faces that I haven't ever seen before, so make sure before you leave today I say hello to some of you. That are, that are new. This might be your first time. Let's do it. Let's get it. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we need you this morning. And, and I recognize the same thing uh, that Lisa said, uh, Lord, that, that today, for whatever reason, um, Lord, I think, at least for me, uh, you, you have me, uh, you've allowed me to be backed into a corner. And, uh, and so I've, I've got I've to reckon some things this morning. I need to come before you in humility and, and, and ask for your help and to, and to seek you um, because I, I sense the attack. I sense um, Satan uh, trying to convince me uh, of some of things that aren't true. And uh, Lord, we've spent all of Romans figuring out what is and isn't true about us. We've spent all the way up to this point from Romans chapter 1 to, to Romans chapter 8 learning about who you've called us to be. And yet, this morning, I, I dare, dare stand before you condemned. God forbid. Help my heart. Draw me to you, Lord. Um, help us to be faithful and diligent as we look at your word this morning. That we, we might recognize the power and the authority that you've called us to. And uh, Lord, that we might have proper burden for those that are lost. We ask this in your son's name. Okay, so we've, we've covered so much ground so far in Romans. Uh, and it's important that we, we kind of go back and, and look and see what we've covered. Um, Romans is a book that was written to the church in Rome uh, early on, at the beginning of the church age. Uh, it, it's a city that's a very eclectic city. Rome was the, the largest city in the world. And uh, it was full of many, many, many different types of people. And what we see is that in Rome, that there was a dilemma in the church because Christianity was so new and the following of Jesus Christ was so new to so many people that there was controversy that was uh, rising up among the Jewish believers, the people that had grown up in the, the faith of, of Scripture, okay, the people who were spiritually minded, and those Gentile con converts who had just come to recognize, came out of paganism, and just came to acknowledge who Jesus Christ truly was. And, and to be honest, as, as much as the Jews knew about God, they knew very little about what it meant to be a Christ follower. And so you've got this mixture of pride, and you've got this mixture of uh, lack of surety and insecurity, and a lack of really doctrinal information about what it means to be saved. Okay? And so what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to set the record straight concerning the gospel and what it means for the church. And so it's a beautiful book in that way. And so 
In terms of our review, you can go ahead and go to the next slide. Thus far in our study, in chapters 1 through 8, what we've looked at is what salvation and what our faith in Jesus Christ has, Christ has meant to us individually. Okay? And so it applies to us at a very personal level. We're learning doctrines concerning what it means to be a personal follower of Jesus Christ. So chapters 1 through 3 specifically deal with mankind's condition. Okay, what it means to be lost, what it means to be separated from God. What it means to be in a world that's, that's beckoning us to follow Jesus Christ and yet be completely unaware and so what these first three chapters do is that they, they frame for us an understanding of what it means to be lost. And then in the following two chapters, in chapters 4 and 5, Paul gives us the solution. Salvation. What it means to be saved. What it means to be justified in Jesus Christ. And when we use that word justified, we've talked about this a lot. But justification means that when God looks upon us, he sees us in terms of our relationship to Jesus Christ, not on the merits of our own life. He doesn't see us after the flesh anymore. He sees us in spiritual terms. He sees us as clean. He sees us, sees us as righteous. He sees us as though we're spotless, like his son, Jesus Christ. And, and chapters 4 and 5 lay that out for us. Okay? But then in chapters 6 through 8, the stuff that we just covered, we... we, we Look and see what it means to walk, try to walk in our faith and how difficult that is. How hard it is for us to daily be following after Jesus Christ and how every day we confront the fact that we're still carrying flesh. That just because we've been justified and just because we've been saved and just because we've been set apart unto Jesus Christ and just, just because we have access to him doesn't mean that we're not still carrying the burden of our flesh day to day. And what should we do about that? And Paul, in, in chapter 6 through 8, what he does is he, he, he gives us insight into what it means to, be, to really be in Christ. And what it means to mortify the flesh. And what it means to walk after him in conformity to his son Jesus Christ. And that's what we looked at in, in, in chapter 6 through 8. And now we come to chapter 9. And this is where Paul switches gears. And in the next three chapters, what we're going to see is we're going to see Paul talking about the nation of Israel. And so it goes from an individual perspective to a national perspective. And we're going to run into uh, a lot of things that if we, if, we, if we unintentionally are thinking too much in terms of the individual and the personal we'll lose sight of the doctrinal application of these three chapters. See, what happens here is a lot of times people take these three chapters and they're in the mode of thinking individually. And they're thinking about the personal application of the previous chapters. And when they read these chapters, what they do is they take promises and ideas and concepts that should apply to a national idea of who Israel is and who they're becoming. And they apply them personally to their lives and then their doctrine gets all mixed up. And we're going we're gonna to work through that over the next few weeks. But today we're going to be introing, uh, introing uh, verse, uh, chapter 9. But before we get started, I want to point out to you a principle that's necessary for Bible study. And some of you are, are new to studying the Bible. This is a brand new thing to you, right? Um, you've maybe just gotten saved, or maybe you grew up 
in a, in a church setting where, where it wasn't necessarily encouraged for you to study the word for yourself. But, but through Bible study or through encouragement of a friend, you've begun to study the Bible really for the first time in your life. And, you know, the beautiful thing about this church is if you just stay around long enough, you're going to pick up, just by osmosis, you're going to pick up Bible principles. Like what it means to study the Bible and, and how to do it, how to do it in a way that, that, that allows you, because the Bible instructs us to divide the word, okay, and to, and to study to show ourselves approved. And what that means is that there's a way that's unapproved. There's a way of studying the Word of God that's unapproved and doesn't divide the Word rightly. And in today's, today's church age, with, with heresy abounding, it's more important than ever for us to understand how to take God's Word and look at them in light of how He prepared them for us. This is crucial. And so, the, so we're going to look at this first Bible principle, which is context. But some of you, who's in D2 this semester? Who's, who's signed up for D2? So that's like a quarter of our class. Uh, Discipleship 2 is a ministry at our church. So it's a growth ministry. It's a, it's a class setting where you go and you're learning about these types of things. And one of the things that you're going to study this year is how to, how to study the Bible. And, and Pastor Kenny Morgan and other leaders are going to sit and they're going to talk to you about how to divide the scripture rightly. And that will be very exciting for you. But this is a principle, this is the very first principle that you'll learn in how to study the Bible. And that's the principle of context. Okay? And that is, the meaning of which is, if you don't understand how what you're re reading relates to the whole of Scripture, then you are in danger of misapplying the information that you receive. Okay, so let me, let me back up and explain that a little bit. You're reading the Word of God. You're, you're, you're reading the Bible. And as we often do, a lot of times we read maybe, a, who reads it like a chapter in the morning? We read a chapter, right? Or maybe we study out a section of verses, a passage. And a lot of times what we do when we do that is we forget everything else we've read the day before. And what, what can happen is if you take a section of verses and you read them outside of their context, then you can unintentionally misapply them to your life. And there are thousands of examples of how you can do this, right? And you can do this and if, if you don't understand what, who the Bible was written to and how it was written in the context of that passage, you can get out of bounds really, really quickly. And this is how teachers in the church age today fall into heresy, is by taking and picking certain verses out and not looking at them in terms of the whole of Scripture, or even the whole of the book that they're reading, and they lose sight of what the real meaning of that passage is. So the very first principle when you're learning how to study the Bible is learning how to apply context to what you're reading. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay. So, it's crucial for us to understand that contextually, these next three chapters are dealing with the nation of Israel. Now, are we going to pull inspiration from these verses that we can apply to our lives? Yeah, because when we leave here, I want to give you a charge, something that encourages your heart. So we'll take principles from these passages, and we'll use them inspirationally. But we will not, brothers and sisters, lose sight of the doctrinal application of what we're reading here deals with the election of the nation of Israel. Not the election of the individual believer. Okay? And what we're going to work through over the next few weeks is understanding, understanding for ourselves 
Now, we have a free will, but there's a promise for a nation. There's a promise for a group of people. There's a covenant that's been made. And there's a group of people that have been set apart and elected to be a peculiar people in this world. And God is going to show us how he's going to enact that truth over time. And so in the next few chapters, if you can bounce back real quick, one more. We're going to look at Israel in the past in chapter 9. We're going to look at Israel in the present, meaning the present in which Paul was writing the, the, the book of Romans. But then also how that moved, that applies even today until the future redemption. Are you with me? Okay, so that's kind of heavy stuff. Okay? So, so you have to be, bear with me. We're going we're to get a little bit academic off and on. Okay? But we are going to first and foremost look at the introduction to this chapter. And this is going to be hard for me to preach. I'm just going to let you know right now. <laughs> so you can anticipate the awkwardness that will arise as I uh, potentially weep throughout this message. <laughs> and for those of you who are used to me, that is not going to be strange. But for those of you who are not used to me, that might be strange. And so I apologize in advance. This is a very powerful portion of Scripture to me. So let's look at it. Verse 1. We're calling this message a burden for Israel. And what we'll be looking at is Paul's heart towards his people. Okay? Towards the, towards his spiritual heritage. Verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. I, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Spirit. So what he's saying is that what he's about to say, he's vowing that it's true. I lie not. Listen, listen, this is very important to me. And what I'm about to say is just a reflection of my conscience, of the heaviness that I carry. Verse 2, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Okay, so why is Paul so burdened? He is burdened because Israel has rejected the Messiah just years previous. Okay, just years previous to even writing this letter, it's still fresh what he's seen. Think about what Paul lived through for a moment. Think about the book of Acts. Think about the record of Paul's life. Think about the things that he saw. And just for instance, think about the day that Paul stood there and held the coats of the men that stoned his brother in Jesus Christ, Stephen, to death. Think about what he's seen in terms of Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about a man whose own people, he's watched them have all of these spiritual blessings, that the law has been revealed to them, the covenants that God had with these people, and yet the much-anticipated Jesus Christ comes into this world, and in the moment where all of the nation of Israel should be ready and prepared and bow down before God, they almost completely, whole with, reject the Messiah. Even Paul himself, until, until the road of Damascus had rejected the truth of the Messiah. And this is a burden that he carries. This, this guys, what I want to point to today is that, that Paul's heart here is actually the heart of Christ. Paul tells us that his heart is heavy and that he is in continual sorrow. You know, on Tuesday, 
On Tuesday, I don't know, some of you all might have noticed this about me. Uh, but on Tuesday, I was, I was visibly sorrowful. And um, I, I purposed to not sit with Kaya because I knew I needed, I went and sat with Katie Pastor King because I needed, I needed a dad uh, on Tuesday. And, um, I, you know, the thing I love about you guys is that um, all teary-eyed, you guys were very, very respectful. And a lot of people came to me and said, are you okay? And I, didn't, I don't have anything to say except for the fact that on Tuesday I was particularly burdened by the soul of one person. And it messed me up. It, it, it tore me down. And it, and it brought me to a place. And it was so funny because I had been studying this, but I wasn't even thinking about this passage at the time. And I only, and I only considered it after the fact. But I was, I was broken. And... My sadness was good. My, my brokenness on Tuesday night was a good thing. And, and while it distracted me from the agenda of the prayer meeting that night, it brought me into the it brought me into true worship with the Lord. And I want to I want to say this. That I think for many of us, uh, we've got people in our lives that we're sorrowful for. Yeah? That there's that there's there's people that we know and love. It's family, it's friends. Yeah. That when we think about them and we think about their spiritual state, the result of that is sorrow. But here's the interesting thing. This doesn't say that he's heavy. And this doesn't say that he's sorrowful. This says that he's continually sorrowful. Doesn't it? Now, we don't know what to do with that. Because for us, it's, it is cumbersome and inconvenient to be in continual sorrow. I mean, we've got lives to live, for crying out loud, right? We've got to go to school, we've got to go to work. You know, I can't just go to my job and weep. I'm a school teacher. <laughs> I can only imagine how that day would go, right? I can't do that. I can't live that life. But I don't necessarily think that that's what's being said here. See, here's the deal. There's, there's, there is, there's a balance here in the way that we should view this passage. Because on, on one hand, I think that there's a lot of us that what we do is that we refuse to think about those that we're sorrowful for. for. And, and we know the situation, and yet, because we know that it brings us low, what we do is we just refuse to think about it day after day. And over time, it leaves our prayer life. It actually escapes our prayer life. Do you, does anybody else relate to that? That what you do is you try to actually forget the thing that makes you sorrowful. You, 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 you put your brother and sister, right, your family members, your, your friends, your, your acquaintances, you try to put them out of your mind a little bit because it's, it preserves you from pain. Now, here's the problem. I think that we live in a society that unhealthily refuses pain. 
I think that we spend a lot of our time trying to distract ourselves from the things that we should be focusing on. And we do that, we do that through entertainment, we do that through study, we do that through our jobs, we work too many hours, and we do it through all types of escapism. And I think when we do that, we reject a very important principle. That Christians are called to be people of continual sorrow. Now, I don't mean, again, I don't mean um, weeping all day long. What I mean is being a people who choose to engage the fact that the people around them are dying and going to hell. Which is a very, 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 very sober thought. Which leads us to our first key point. The burden of Christian enlightenment, by enlightenment I mean being awoken to truth, right? Recognizing the truth of scripture. The burden of Christian enlightenment is the awareness of the value of the soul. Now, before you were saved, you probably only had a loose conception of heaven and hell. Right? Like like you knew of it, maybe you believed in it, maybe you didn't. But before you were saved, your conception of, of what hell and heaven were were only a loose framework at best. But the day that you saw your sin for what it was, and the day that you saw that Jesus Christ had created an escape plan from hell, and that he had set a place in heaven eternally for you, for those who repent and turn towards him, is the day that you realize the value of a soul. That's the day that you truly understood what it meant to be an eternal being. And that's the day that you could not escape the fact that God values every single soul in this world. And if we're to have his heart, then we are to be like Jesus Christ, who was willing to give up anything for the sake of souls. You understand what I'm saying? So what I'm calling you, brothers and sisters, to do is to engage the idea that you are, you are a person of sorrow if you are a believer. That is what you need to be. A sorrowful heart leads us to do things that a distracted Christian cannot do. And it leads us to live in a way that a distracted Laodicean Christian will never live. And it will lead us to say things that the average believer would never say. It'll make you radical. And so Paul makes a radical statement. From a sorrowful heart, uh, Paul says in verse 3, a very powerful yet eccentric, and he recognizes the eccentricity in what he says, a powerful yet eccentric statement in verse 3. This is what he says about the nation of Israel. He says, For I could wish that myself were accursed uh, from Christ for my brethren. My kinsmen, according to the flesh. What, what a strange thing to say. 
This is what he said. He said, now, now I want to make sure it's clear. He says, for I could wish. So like it's a, it's a hypothetical. Because what he's saying is as, as he says it, he, he recognizes that it's impossible. He could wish it. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. You know, uh, Moses says something similar to that in Exodus chapter 32, in verses 30 through 33. He says, And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord for adventure. I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of the book. And I love that, that God corrects Moses here. And he says, look, son, you don't, you don't get it. It's those who sin against me who don't, their name is not written in my book. But look at Moses' heart. Even him, think about it. Moses doesn't have the scriptures here. He doesn't have the, 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 the benefit of doctrine that Paul had. And so here, he just doesn't know what else to say before the Lord. He doesn't even understand the, 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 the weakness of his own statement. He's just a burning man who sees a people whom he loves greatly. I mean, what other leaders are any greater than Moses and Paul? And yet, they're the only people in the whole scripture that say anything like this. I mean, it's a, they're absurd statements. But yet what they say is that they're willing to give up just anything for the, for the people that they love. And Paul, what Paul is really saying here is he's saying, I could wish, or, or I could vainly desire, or I could imagine a situation in which I could give my life for Israel. And, and why say such a thing? Because Paul's burden for lost souls is so great that the only way he could express it is to say that I love them so much that it makes my love for myself look like hatred. I care for these people so much and I value their souls so greatly that it makes my love and my preservation of myself look like hatred in light of that love. He, it's the only way he knows how to express this truth. Now we know this to be Paul's character. Acts chapter 20, verse 23 says, save, the, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying, that bonds and afflictions abide in me. This is Paul speaking. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. What is he saying? He's saying, I will not be deterred by, by fleshly and temporal distractions or worldly oppressions. I will not be swayed one way or another. I will not let people's attack on me change my perspective. I value not my life. My only joy, my only concern is with ministering the gospel to lost souls. Is that your perspective? 
Is that who you are, believer? Because if so, from time to time, we will see sorrow in your face. You understand? Keep going. For a Christian, it is necessary that our emotions and actions reflect God's love for the human soul. For a Christian, it is necessary that our emotions and actions reflect God's love for the human soul. It's necessary. And the truth is, if your emotions and actions don't reflect value for the human soul, it's because you're far from the Lord. You don't know him intimately. Because if you do, you will take on his character. 1 Corinthians 9.19 Paul says something really amazing that I've still yet to understand. Um, Verse 19, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And, And by gain, he means draw people into godliness. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law, to to them that are without the law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. And I made my I made all things I made all things to all men that I might be by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that he's willing to, to enter into any situation and alter his countenance and to hold himself differently. And to put him in a position of vulnerability for the simple sake that he might be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to just a few people. That he might save some. I mean, even here he recognizes that this is a, like, being all things to all people is a lot of work to save some. But what he says, he, he opens this by saying, I am a servant to Christ, so I'm a servant to mankind. And we don't know how to do this. And we don't know how to think this way. Because because inconvenience is a deterrent to sorrow. And so even though uh, Paul was burdened this way, what we realize really quickly is that, that Israel was, was lost. It's simply because he felt this way, and this is how he hurt, didn't change the fact that Israel was still turned away from God. Paul is painting a hypothetical, uh, hypothetical suggesting that even if I could trade my salvation for Israel, I know that it is impossible. So it's important for us to know that this statement isn't really about Paul trading away his salvation. As much as him describing for these Christians in Rome just how extreme the lostness of the nation of Israel truly is. These people's hearts were hardened to truth, that they were blind to truth. 
And we must understand that likewise, there's nothing that we can do to save people. You understand? There's nothing that you can do personally to make people with a hard heart come to know Christ. People get the benefit of a free will. They get that benefit. We cannot want salvation for the lost more than the lost want salvation for themselves. We can't. Now, what Paul's saying is that we can. <laughs> right? We can't make people saved. You understand what I'm getting at here? We cannot make lost people saved just because we're burdened for them to be so. But what our sorrow can do is drive us to our knees and beg the Savior to work in a way that, not, that, that he might otherwise not work. Hence three weeks of prayer and fasting, Luther. You know what prayer and fasting is? That is is the outcome. That's the outcome of continual sorrow. That's what it is. And so as we, as a church, come into this time, this season of prayer and fasting... We need to recognize that we have to have the names of souls on our lips. That we have to believe that God is going to use this time of prayer and fasting to bend the ears and bend the will of people who've thus far rejected his name. And listen to me, folks. I believe the word of God. The word of God says that that will have great impact. The, the, the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And I don't need to understand it to know that it's true. That Jesus Christ is interceding, that the Holy Spirit is interceding, and then I too have the power to intercede on the behalf of those who don't know Jesus Christ. And I will do so. Amen. And I will do it gladly. And I will do it with brokenness. And I will do it with humility. And I will have the heart of Hannah. And I will go to the throne room. And I will lay before God. And I will refuse worldly desires. And I will call upon the Son of God to intervene on the behalf of the people that I love. That is what I'm going to do. And listen to me, Kaya. Do not take this season lightly. This is not an opportunity for you to for you to create a new diet. And you think I'm playing. But I I hear it. This is not just an exercise in refusing our flesh. This is practicing sorrow and mourning for the lost. This is calling upon God to work in our very tiny, ant-like situations. I mean, look at us. We are just one, we are just a hundred of Christians, millions of all over the world whom whom Christ loves so he knows every hair on your head 
He knows every tear you've ever cried. He knows it. And when you call upon him, So we must take this season seriously. And I don't want to look past this opportunity because, you know, it's, I think it's fitting that we're doing this fast at the very beginning of the semester because I believe with all my heart that a harvest is coming. But I'm telling you this, we as a ministry can reject it. We can refuse it and we can be unready because we haven't prepared our hearts the right way. And some of you are sitting next to people in your classes you ought to have a solid heart for, and you don't. We must understand that, that nothing we can do personally can save someone. Because Christ did all the work. And so while we, we can proclaim and we can pray, at the end of the day, it is a person's free will decision that sets them free. So now let's quickly... Look at Israel, who's without excuse. Okay? Let's, let's switch gears back to Israel. Let's look for a moment why Israel is without excuse. Can we do that? <laughs> Verse 4. Who are the Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Who are the fathers? And of whom, are, uh, of whom and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. What, what is often shocking to us is just how Israel has been blessed so much and yet has refused to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. And Paul tells us here how in every way God gave and is giving them opportunity to follow him. So let's look at what God extended to them in the following gifts. The first thing is adoption. Okay, what, what is adoption? It's the gift of acceptance into his divine family. Now, who in here, okay, just for a moment, I've said this before, when I was a young believer, I said this, the Old Testament is boring. <laughs> we got one person that's willing to confess that they've said that before. I mean, growing up in church, I was weak, and, and when I read the Old Testament, it just was like gobbledygook to me. I, I had no idea what was happening here. I didn't see how the story is connected. I didn't understand the lineage. I didn't understand what God had been doing. It just sounded a lot different than the world that I lived in. And so I, I was kind of afraid to read it. And so I camped out in places that made a lot of sense to me, like James. That book made a lot of sense to me, right? Um, but, but so I stayed in the New Testament. But what I was doing when I did that is I was actually not allowing uh, God to show me the complete revelation of his word. And exactly what he was up to in the world. And there's so much to this story. And we don't have time to extrapolate it. In fact, we've, we've done a lot of the work in the past. Uh, when we studied uh, chapters like 4, 5, and 6, when we looked at Abraham, we talked a lot about the nation of Israel. But what we need to know is that of every tribe of, of persons on the earth, God chose a particular pe uh, people group. And he called them. He gave them the, the name Israel. And that is what election is. Is God choosing 
And we'll talk more about this word election uh, as we move on through the chapter, but this is it. This is the election. God took a group of people and said, I'm going to use you. Make sense? And so I think that that's quite a gift. I think that that's quite a blessing that God bestowed upon this tribe of people to say, I will make you my children, and I will use you to bless the entire world. I think that's quite a thing. And what God did, and we're not going to look at all these verses, you should write them down. Because this stuff is doctrinal, and this is stuff that you need to be able to come back to. Okay, this is very, very, very important stuff. But what God did is he adopted a people group to be his family. He took them in. He made them his own. And he gave them a gift of being a part of him. What else did he do? He gave them his glory, which is the gift of his very presence. They were guided in the wilderness. You guys remember that? In the Exodus, wandering around the, the, uh, around the wilderness, the God himself was their God, and his very presence was in their midst. He revealed himself to them in the tabernacle. He revealed himself in the temple. His glory was in the very midst of the people. And that's no joke. That's a very serious thing. That's a very serious gift. Can you imagine being Israel and God leading you through, through the night in a pillar of fire and by day, a pillar of smoke? Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine seeing the waters parted by the very hand of God? No, you can't. It's not even worth trying. They had the very presence of God in their midst. What a gift. They were given the covenants. The gift of God's binding promises. Now, now real quick, in our world today, there is heretical teachings. In fact, we can trace them back. We can trace them back to a place called Alexandria. But there's teachings going on that would, would call us to look at the scriptures and replace the nation of Israel with the church. In other words, well, God divorced the church, or divorced the nation of Israel, and now it's just the church, and there's nothing else. And all of those promises that belong to Israel, they no longer apply. And those covenants now belong to the church. And that did not happen. That did not happen. It's very, very important for us to read this rightly. Look at what it says in verse uh, 4. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants. It pertaineth. It belongs to them. Presently belongs to them. Psalm 105 verse 8 says, He hath remembered his covenant forever. Well, do, what do we do? Just throw that verse out? We throw that verse out? I mean, he's saying right now, in verse 8, he says, He hath remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel, an everlasting covenant. What do you do with that word? You just throw out the word everlasting? Is that not true? God's going back on his word? The New Testament means he reapplies his promise? No, there's nothing. There's nothing in scripture that would lead us to believe that. We don't get to call God a liar. And this, this idea of replacement theology is a very dangerous one because it will throw off our complete understanding of eschatology and the end times. It will throw it off completely. Yeah. 
And so we need to be very careful about it. And we'll address it a little bit as we address Reformed theology. But let's look briefly at these covenants that God made. First of all, there was a covenant to Abraham. Summarized like this. God's promise was to build a large nation that would bless the world. He promised Abraham that they would inherit a landmass that would belong to them forever. I mean, even when the nation of Israel was dispersed throughout the entire world, God kept this promise. And in the last century, he has drawn his people back to the land. He's restored them to the place that he says belongs to them forever. I don't know what you do with that. It freaks me out. If you're not freaked out by that, then you're not really looking at history. You're not really thinking about it. God's promises are sure. The covenant also covers the fact that they will be his family forever. From generation after generation, they will be his family to the very end. Then he makes a covenant with Moses in Exodus chapter 19 through 20. And it summarizes this. It's God giving the law to the nation of Israel that they might have a godly standard by which to live. Look, this is what he's doing. He's saying, hey folks, you're having trouble following me. Even though I'm in your very presence, I'm noticing a little bit of bitterness. And you're not really doing what I'm asking you to do. So let's do this. Let me give you something to abide by, something to follow, a law. And in doing so, you'll be blessed. How about that? So he gives them this covenant through the law. Then there's the Davidic covenant. And the verses are up there. It summarizes this. is God's promise to establish an eternal kingdom through the line of David. He makes a promise that he's going to use David's kingdom to establish a kingdom that will not just last here in this temporal world, but go beyond this world into eternity future. And listen to me. The fact that they refuse Jesus Christ now does not negate the fact that this is a promise in Scripture. Amen. That they will be his kingdom. That they will be his people. And that they will once again return to him and follow after him. That's the Davidic covenant. There's an everlasting covenant. Okay, And this proclaims basically what we've been saying already. That, it's a, that these promises of a, a coming national salvation uh, are sure. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 through 34. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Is that clear enough for you? After the, those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write, and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's a day that's coming in the future. This is part of that everlasting covenant. This is the, this is the future salvation of the nation of Israel. That there'll come a time in which he, he takes their sin and their iniquity, and they repent whole with. In every way, they repent as a nation of people. Now, what's going on in Romans here? Some Jews have been saved. We're not talking about individuals here. We're talking about a national salvation. We're talking about the repentance of the entire people group. Because even in the context of Romans, some Jews have been saved. You understand? So this is very, very important. What God is saying is that in the future, 
when the Messiah is revealed truly for who he is, the blinders and the hardness of the heart of the nation of Israel will be lifted, and they will suddenly see the Messiah as Jesus Christ. And in that moment, they will repent of their sins, that's super important, and their sins will be forgiven. That's the everlasting covenant. And then there's the new covenant in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 30. He summarizes this, a promise that Christ will fellowship with them again in his kingdom. That he will break bread with them and he will fellowship with them. Man, God did a lot there, didn't he? This is a privileged people. What else did he do? He gave them, he gave them the law. He gave them the law. The gift of God's very words. They were given the words of God to study and to know for themselves. What else did he give them? He gave them service, the honorable gift to serve him and, and, and his people. And this is through the, the worship in the tabernacle, the worship in the temple. He gave them things to do. And what does the verse say? Who's, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came? And who is over all? God bless forever. Amen. They gave them, he gave them, am I done here? Can we tell? Dying. Dying. I'm good. I'll finish strong. We're almost there. This is what, this is the last thing that we read here. Is that, that God gave them the Messiah to come through their fathers, to come through their patriarchs, to come, to come through their, their, their line of people, as the very Messiah would be born out of this people group. What, what privileges, what gifts, what blessings were bestowed upon the nation of Israel? And yet they refused him. So key point. This is the last one. In light of God's love and blessing, the nation of Israel is without excuse for not following Christ. They were given every opportunity they were given every blessing. They were given, given God's very words. They were given his direction. They were given these covenants. They were given everything they need to know and to see who Christ was when he came. They had everything they needed to repent. They had everything they needed to have the right perspective. And yet, they didn't follow after Christ. Now, that has doctrinal implications, but it also has personal inspiration application. So, you ready? In conclusion, folks... What have you been given? What has God given you? He's given you his word. A complete word. Not even the nation of Israel had a completed word of God. What I hold right here in my hands is, is greater than a cloud by day and a, and a pillar of fire by night. This is Every word that God has for me to live right in this world and to follow after him is right here. And yet many of us don't. He's taken his very presence that he gave to the nation physically and put it inside me. He put it inside me. He put his Holy Spirit inside of me. That I might have his heart. And yet I don't listen. He's given me the church. He's given me the body of Christ. He's given me, he's given me his love 
through you. And yet many of us struggle to even attend church. Now, now here's what I want to get at. Is what do you have? And, and why are you not following? I mean, there's some of you in this room who've, who've heard truth. And you know who Jesus Christ is. And you've been preached to. And you've been warned. And you recognize the authority of the word of God. You would say, yeah, the Bible is true. And yet, you've not yet repented of your sin. And you are just like the nation of Israel. You've got your blinders up. You've got your defense up. You've got your walls built. You're afraid of the truth. Because you know when it hits you. And it penetrates your heart that everything will change. And what I'm doing is I'm calling you right now. Listen to me. If you have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you see that he's given you all these things, you can be just like the nation of Israel and refuse God. And what I'm begging you today is to not do that. I'm begging you to recognize all the gifts that God has given you, New Testament believer, and follow after him. What are you waiting for? What is keeping you from making a decision? Do not be blind. Today is the day of salvation. If there's anyone in this room that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, then you need to come and grab me after service and we can go sit down and we can talk about what it means to follow after Jesus Christ. Talk to the person that, came, that you came with. Talk to someone from your Bible study. This is something that has to be taken care of. Now, believers, for those of you who are following after Christ and you've come to a place of salvation... Some of you need to change the way you see the lost. And you need to once again take upon you the burden of sorrow. And some of you need to pray during our invitation right now that you would get a soft heart. That God would work in you even right now that you might see the lost world the way that he does. Yeah? It's hotter than a biscuit in here. Oh my gosh, it's hot. You know what? You know what? When a room is hot and sticky like this, you're cold? Yeah. But this is what I'm asking is that as we close and as we leave, that you would not let anything be an excuse. Don't be too tired to respond to the Lord. Don't be too distracted to do the thing that you know that God's calling you to do. Don't waste your life, please. We need to be hard-pressed, focused. Let's pray. Can we do that? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. And God, I, I pray that it's penetrating. Um, God, I, I, 